Welcome to another edition of Pathfinders. I'm your host, Joe Coletti, and in this episode, we're diving into the fast-moving world of biotech M&A and its evolving impact on strategic value creation. Recently, at our annual Global Healthcare Conference, we convened a panel of industry veterans, Dr. Ted Love, the former CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics, Mark Dugaradel, the former CEO of Syncor, and Abbas Kazimi, the Chief Business Officer of Nimbus, to explore the shifting dynamics shaping a new era of deal flow across the industry. The conversation, moderated by three of our leading biotech analysts, Gregory Renza, Brian Abrams, and Luca Isi, began with a significant regulatory development, a lawsuit by the Federal Trade Commission to block Amgen's $27.8 billion acquisition of Horizon Therapeutics, which raises potential concerns about a wider crackdown on consolidation across the sector. Let's dive right into the debate with Gregory Renza's first question. The FTC news that that came across yesterday with concerns about the blockage or the lawsuit for the Amgen Horizon acquisition. So we're going to start there, uh, maybe fresh off some of these concerns, the, the, the impact of product bundling, of diversification, but, but also monopolistic intent for the FDA. Mark, I just want to start to you in light of, of this perhaps rattling the sector and the inner workings of this in what was the largest deal last year for Amgen for Horizon. How are you processing this information? What is your interpretation of the concerns that are at play when it comes to FTC and what are the implications? Well, I would say on one hand, it's not a complete surprise that the FTC has, uh, you know, historically has looked at this with the current administration at a big transaction. And there was a word there that, that said, you know, a few months ago that uh, above 60 billion, there would be no transaction. So this was the sort of, uh, you know, unspoken rule. I mean, with, with Amgen, 28 billion. So it's obviously lower. But I think, you know, part of it is related to what you uh, highlighted, this question of bundling and application to commercial products. So on one hand, it's clear it's not great news. At the same time, I would say for biotechs who are developing drugs, you know, phase one, phase two, and even I think phase three, I would be less uh, nervous than the market in at least in the last two days. But, uh, you know, I think overall, it's, it, it tells me, yes, large transactions are going to be difficult, and especially on commercial products. This being said also, Amgen is a bit, it's not really Amgen's responsibility, the PBMs were actually, you know, the ultimate sort of decision maker in making the margins and deciding which drug to take. So, you know, if I were Amgen, you know, modestly, I would go back to the FTC and say, you know, I'm not designing you know, which drug gets on, you know, uh, prescribed and, and on the formulary. And it's, uh, you know, the PBMs will basically decide. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Abbas, Mark mentioned something very interesting just about the implications to the early stage look drug development. That's where you sit. What, what are your views on some of the antitrust concerns that, as you evaluate the strategic landscape? First of all, I think they had no option. They really had to exercise their muscle. They've been talking about it for a long time. Um, make a case study out of Amgen. I think investors right now are reacting, assuming the case is going to hold up in court. It's, it's an interesting case. Let's see it holds up. Where we look at this as a small, early-stage developer in drugs, I think this is a good shift for small mid-caps because now you're going to take less pressure from pharma looking at you know, market and approved assets and start pushing it down. There were a number of deals with significant value uh, last year in phase two, phase three that were executed. So you know, given our relationships with pharma, who we talk to very regularly, uh, I think, number one, will it deter them? It'll probably put a little bit of a pause, but that pause has been there for the past three years. Number two, they'll probably start deploying capital, which they have to, as Mark highlighted, 
and start looking at more diligently some of the earlier stage developers. You know, avoid the approved and marketed assets, start you know, getting relationships early on. That might drop value. You might not have the $74 billion or $28 billion takeouts. But again, you know, to be determined valuation, the earlier stage you know, celebration for the pipeline, ultimately matter. Ted, how are you digesting this? So I think, you know, as Abbas said, there was a lot of motivation and desire to do something. I think the ongoing kind of dispute between Regeneron and Amgen about the PCSK9 and how they're leveraging their commercial could be a little bit behind this. But my bet would be that this is not going to hold up. It's really not the role of the FTC to really be determining things like bundling as a basis for blocking emergence. So I think it's, it's creative. It shows this desire to try to block mergers. Uh, but, you know, you need to do it for valid reasons. And I'd suspect that this is not ultimately going to be viewed as a valid reason. And speaking of valid reasons from the eyes of a, of a seller, which is, is where you all have been in the recent past, selling a company can be a very complicated decision, multifactorial in addition to just governmental concerns. You're factoring the stage of the company, the external capital environment, even investor perceptions, in addition to just the nature of your portfolio. How did you know it was the right time to, to, to sell your, your respective companies or, 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 or respective assets? And maybe, Ted, starting with you on GBT. Well, the number one consideration, honestly, is the price. You know, I would always tell people that if you run a public company, it's not your company. It's the investor's company. And you're really trying to make sure that you do your best to represent the shareholders in the company most of whom have no interactions with you directly. So I, I, the number one thing has to be the price. We were also, I think, as a company at a stage where we were globalizing the commercialization of the product, and we were building that footprint step-by-step step in a very methodical way and also a constrained way, quite frankly. So there was a rationale to create a relationship with a multinational like Pfizer that could immediately pre-existing infrastructure make those products available. In particular, one of the things that was emotionally exciting, I think, for me was that Pfizer, under Albert's leadership, had already created a commitment to make their drugs available at cost to, I think, the 45 poorest countries in the world. Some of those countries, of course, have sickle cells. So it was a great fit from the perspective of a return for the shareholders at a time when the market was very tough and shareholders were having a hard time getting good returns. But it was also, I thought, great for the patients in terms of putting the products into a company which had more muscle and more resources to make the products available more rapidly. Maybe one quick follow-up, Mark, if I may. I think there's a perception or I would argue even a dogma from investors that companies don't get bought before a big binary, right? There's a big binary upcoming. And so no pharma will be interested above it. They want to see how that big binary play out. However, in your case, that wasn't the case, right? AstraZeneca was willing to actually transact ahead of a big binary. So can you just maybe talk about that? Is this perception from investor not the right way to think about it? And most importantly, what really gave conviction AstraZeneca to make an offer? despite the binary was upcoming. 
Well, again, the easiest way for big pharma is to yeah, wait for the data and then, uh, you know, and then buy you because in the end they are, they have cash. Two, they are risk averse. And three, they don't like to carry too much R&D costs, right? Because when, if they do it too early, they have to, you know, do R&D, more R&D version. Then uh, their internal teams have to decide which drugs are going to push. And, you know, it's actually, you know, if you speak to big pharma, they will tell you, you know, you kill, it's much easier to kill external projects than internal projects. Abbas, on the question of when to sell, as the panel is acknowledging, a strategic love data. So for early stage assets, how are you securing that value and maintaining leverage? Yeah, so we had a whole different experience as a private company. So, you know, price is obviously a conversation, but for us, the way we're set up as Nimbus, so we just celebrated our 14 year history as a privately held. So most banks hate us because we haven't jumped on that IPO train. And we've thought about it twice, but each time we've had an M&A. The way we're set up is each asset is a bespoke subsidiary. And so naturally there's going to be an inflection point where we assume it'll be an M&A or we continue developing. I mean, first and foremost, Mark, to your part, we believe in the asset to enough to keep capitalizing and getting it to the right point. In parallel, we've been engaged with pharma for years, even from target selection throughout the process. So there was never a moment where you have to hire a banker and then run a quote unquote process. You have been notifying pharma along the way. Not too much to add. Um... Yes, interest rates, you know, were part of the uncertainty and COVID and all these things. So it's an educated you know, judgment from, especially again, when you're in a public company with the board to say, you know, what do you do? You have, a, you know, an offer potentially, which, which is now, and then you have the risk of execution. You have the risk of raising again more, more capital under maybe different circumstances and so on. And ultimately, you know, in our case, we would have to wait until the end of the phase three. You know, still a risk that drug may fail, not so much because the drug didn't work, but, you know, ex execution issue in, in the way a clinical trial was done by a small company. So I think, you know, this is a tension. So I don't know if there is a really a magic formula for it. You know, these are, again, I think judgment calls are different, you know, depending upon, you know, where the investors are. I mean, in Syncor case, we had raised what, about 600 million before. So we had also a great cash position, which, by the way, we didn't talk about that. This is actually also an, an important thing when you, when you, if you want to sell, because you're in a much greater position if you have plenty of cash in your bank, because otherwise, again, Big Pharma is saying they are counting the months and they are saying, you know, these guys are going to run out of cash at some point or they are going to freak out and then we'll offer you a low price. And then, you know, what do you do? Then you're in trouble and you have to sell. So, you know, these are part of, uh, you know, the consideration, but it's, it's not that easy, but the more uncertainty you have, obviously, the more the board is tempted to, to sell relatively quickly if the offer is, you know, gives already very good return to the investors. Yeah, what Mark, I agree with you. What you're saying is don't put yourself in a position where you need to sell the company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that is a position of weakness and that will likely be taken advantage of. Yeah, yeah I think we have the same thought process. We... We actually, in the middle of all this negotiation, we actually financed ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I think most pharma was surprised that we brought on Bain Capital, SV Health, led that rounds, RA Capital, BVF for all investors, they re-upped. And so in the middle of, right after Bristol's approval, that Monday morning, we announced another financing. Pharma was, okay, clearly you're excited about your data, there's something trending. So that naturally just started pushing their enthusiasm to engage, right? So the ability to continue accessing capital in whatever format, private or public, really kind of sends a message to the pharma partners that there's clearly belief here yeah. to continue moving the asset and try to get your hands on it. 
A lot of us have been grappling with the potential implications of the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, on the space overall. I'm curious, what's your sense as to how significantly potential acquirers of your respective companies or, or assets scrutinize the potential impact that the IRA might have to, to the out-year revenue prospects? Maybe about starting with you and going down the line. Look, for us, with that particular program, inflammation immunology wasn't a negotiation tactic. Yeah. Right. It wasn't what we're, I think, where we are today now that we've exited that asset. You know, we have a, an HPK1 program for immune oncology. You're starting to see pharma start talking about IRA. Now, if I really kind of push the narrative with my colleagues at AbbVie, Rose, Sanofi, and others, they're all going to keep their ear to the ground and see where IRA eventually goes. Humbly, in my opinion, right now, it's a good negotiation tactic because no one really knows where it's going to end up. So it's a good way to start pounding down on term sheet evaluations versus fundamentally saying we know what it's going to end up like. I think we'll have to wait the next year to see where it resolves. I have a board uh, with RA Capital, so Peter Kolchinski is quite loud about the IRA. So we are evaluating how it impacts our overall portfolio. But for now, I just think it's, again, a 2B known and 2BD overall. I think Zabas said we don't really know what the long-term impact will be. What I'm very confident of is that some of the things are going to change. I, I actually think the 9-12 year disparity is going to change. It's not going to change as long as Biden is president. There is enough of an understanding that at some point this whole thing will collapse if you stress it too much. And I know people in Congress who understand that. Not everyone does, but there are enough people that do that. I don't think 12 will go to nine. I think nine will go to 12. There's a lot in the implementation that is being worked through right now. And in my conversations with CMS, again, they seem interested in trying to make sure that they don't totally interrupt innovation. People will still want to protect innovation. I think people still want to protect the leadership that we have in this country for really making great therapies for uh, serious diseases that continue to be you know, continue to be a problem. Maybe, maybe if I can ask Brad's question slightly differently. Um, is this net positive or net negative in terms of the number of deals that we're going to see? I think on one side, you can argue the assets that some of the biotech companies now are developing, and I understand this case by case, now less valuable because the NPV is coming down with the IRA. However, on the other side, you can argue, well, pharma companies can no longer rely on Sorelto and Optivo and some of the bigger cash cows that have been generating a lot of revenue. So will that be incentive for them to actually access early innovation and actually do more deals? So at the end of the day, you think it's going to be, it's going to drive more deals in the sector or less deal in the sector? What are your thoughts? Maybe let's start with you, Ted. If I think you drive more deals, actually, because if you think about it, in many ways, we were acquired because of COVID. I mean, ironically, Pfizer had this massive run up in revenues, kind of like Gilead had back uh, in the hepatitis days. And you saw what happened to Gilead when those revenues went away. Well, you know, Pfizer is not dumb. I mean, they know that this COVID revenue is going to go away and it needs to be replaced. And, you know, they've been very open that they think it's about $30 billion of revenue that they need to replace looking out to 2030. And they were very clear to us. They thought we could close about 10% of that hole. They're very clear with Seijin that they felt that Seijin could close about a third of that hole, 10 billion, and they need to fill that hole. And 
the one thing that I used to explain to our employees during the acquisition, you know, Pfizer is not going to give you stock. They're going to give you money. In biotech companies, the scarce item is money. In big pharma, that's not the scarce item. They've got money. So they need to continuously be deploying their money to make sure that they keep the revenue train going. So I think that if I were running a big pharma company, IRA would be, if it certainly wouldn't be discouraging me from using my money to grow my revenues in the future. It'd probably be inspiring me that I really got to do it. We've heard about INI. We're hearing about rare disease, uh, approaching commercialization, needing to build globally. These are from the eyes of the, the seller, if you will. From the eyes of the buyer, what are the things that pharma wants? What do you sense larger companies are, are looking for these days? And we're thinking indication. The question is also around products. Is it platform? What are the degrees of, of de-risking? Mark, let's, let's go to you. I would say first, again, because of what they described, some of them are going to see either through COVID or the patent expiration 25 to 30, you know, a very un unpleasant period if they don't replace their portfolio. So they need to do things to massively have an impact on their top line. So it's not a $500 million product that they're interested in. They're interested literally in, uh, in blockbusters. So the, the proof has demonstrated that if you have a great drug that has potential to be blockbuster, where there is an unmet medical need, it's differentiated, you know, you'll find the big guys because that's, that's what they, they, they need. They need the differentiation. They have the power, you know, they have the infrastructure, the commercial to fully exploit it, which obviously the small company don't. That's why I think they are, they are probably much more open, at least in the last 12 months, I would say, even in terms of therapeutic areas. So I think in general, chronic treatment, I think is back. You know, a lot was oncology. Okay. You know, a quick, uh, quick win. And, you know, not long studies, you, you treat, uh, you know, but oncology, again, what, what, what I gather is not to discourage, uh, because in oncology, there are still plenty of opportunities. But my sense is the market is fragmenting itself a lot. So uh, de facto, the market size is shrinking for the assets, you know, in terms of uh, for, for big pharma. Yeah, I think there's a transition. You're seeing a lot more inflammation deals. Metabolism's hot. Gl you know, glip one's a Hollywood drug. The Hollywood drug, that means there's going to be a lot of money put there and everyone's now working on, you know, something in that realm. Um, what we noticed was there's, number one, what they're looking for partners is de-risk as much as possible. I think in our space in small molecules, it's also ability to scale up manufacturing, right? How many synthesis steps does it take to get this compound to a point where you can run multiple doses in a phase three to try it out? So they're really pushing diligence on, you know, is chemistry really sound? In the world of small molecule, it's... IP. So that has to be completely put together and packaged. And so I would say, you know, between clinical development plans, the data you have to date, CMC and IP, you spend a lot of time diligencing those areas just to make sure the handoff happens. And now they have a runway. Look, I think going back to the IRA, the nine-year window, if you have a good IP strategy, start filing those extensions. You can start adding on four or five years more. So we started noticing that as a big narrative as well. Like, what is your IP expansion strategy, combination strategy? You start dominating that space. So I think pharma's diligence standards have been raised, rightfully so. There have been a lot of burns uh, in the past few years as well as deals have gone through. I guess one of the things we've been thinking about here is, you know, big pharma is, is clearly flush with cash. As you said, it's not a scarcity for them, right? They're in need of pipeline breath. Valuations still look relatively depressed amongst Smith and small cap companies versus what they used to be. You all obviously got major deals done. 
starting to maybe see some hints of more M&A happening, but we haven't necessarily seen the big uptick I think a lot of folks were expecting. Why do you think that is? Why aren't we seeing more? Do you think it's valuation sensitivity, a lack of quality assets out there, a predilection towards just focusing on investing in internal R&D? Why do you think there's that disconnect? Maybe Ted started with you. I think a lot of the no-brainers have already been acquired, right? I mean, uh, Pfizer was very aggressive and, <laughs> and uh, Albert was very clear that they were out there to get products that they could see filling a hole. Now, they're trying to fill a very specific kind of 20, 30 hole. So I, I think there has been uh, an effort to go after the obvious place, but I think there will continue to be because every, I think, quarter, there's going to be another biotech company, which is, you know, like these guys are going to show data cards and they're going to hit that threshold. So I think it's going to continue. But I think a lot of the ones that were already established kind of sitting on the shelf, like GBT, I think they've been plucked off the shelf. I know you've sat in both the big pharma seat as well as the small biotech seat. What are your perspectives on why we're not seeing more? Because uh, people want to see data. I mean, with the uncertainty of, uh, you know, the world is uh, very uncertain. There is bad, bad news every morning when you wake up. And uh, these guys, again, are becoming more and more risk adverse. And they see that there is a bunch of companies that are trading below cash uh, and market cap. So they say, I have a menu of, uh, you know, I don't know, 2,000 companies that are there that would love to be bought. So let, let's wait to see you know, when, when the data flips. And, and before, I think some companies were willing to take the risk because there was more competition or, or the environment was, you know, the valuation were much higher. So people, you know. But now they can just wait and, and see the, you know, the apple fall from, uh, from the tree. But then they need to be, on the flip side, they need to be a bit faster once they, they see the data. This is what I've again seen. They are very fast. You know, Corvillia, Pfizer sent us, we got the phase two results. They sent, you know, 55 people two days. You know, we were, you know, we were 15 people in the company. Maybe if I may go back to Brian's questions, why we haven't seen more. We're seeing obviously the field going to small molecules, monoclonal antibodies, to now much more complex modalities, platform company, RNA editing, DNA editing, and whatnot. Do you think that that will overall lower the number of transactions that we're going to see going forward? as maybe pharma companies just prefer to partner with these companies in which, instead of an outright acquisition, just given the complexities around both the science as well as manufacturing. Any, any thoughts there from any of you guys? Yeah. I think you're going to start seeing smart deals take place, not just straight out acquisitions. I think they're going to start putting back in the you know 2010 to 15 timeline, there, was, there were smart deals. There were structure, there were licensing with options to buy into. I think you're going to start seeing a little bit of more of those come back to flavor to start de-risking. I think putting out cash this early on, I think all the points Brian mentioned on valuation, on you know scarcity of assets. I think if you look at all the deals that have happened since last summer until now, they're all extremely competitive. Meaning pharma is putting out a lot of time, a lot of teams to go diligence, right? You're rarely hearing that it's either one bidder or two, you're hearing plus three or four. And so that means that they are actively deploying. Step it back, I think they're going to start de-risking. And so you are going to start seeing structured deals. You know, one reason I would add onto the list that Brian mentioned is that while valuations are settling, I don't think some of the biotechs have caught on that if my valuation in the public is X, 
my ideal expectation is why, that's not going to work. And so pharma can walk away as well, right? If it's not de-risk enough and they know that you're going to have a hard time accessing capital from the markets, they know that they have the cash and eventually your expectations will set. So I would start saying at the back end of this year, you were starting seeing an uptake when everyone's pressured so much that their expectations start meeting reality and pharma starts figuring out. Platform-wise, last year was tough, maybe a good tough in some sense to kind of clean out some of the early platforms that took too much capital. It's just, we needed that refresh. And so now you're going to start seeing emerging platforms or tools that may have longer term sustainability, right? I do think our industry is phenomenal at you know finding out new modalities and that needs to be fostered, but fostered thoughtfully. It can't just be, you know, the spread of cash in the 2018, 2019 heydays. It needs to be very selective and very thoughtful. So the cleaning up will continue until I would say Q4, then you can start seeing more engagement with better deal structures put in place. Thank you for listening to another episode of Pathfinders and Biopharma, brought to you by RBC Capital Markets. This panel discussion was recorded during our Global Healthcare Conference on May 17th, 2023. If you'd like to learn more or continue the conversation, please contact us directly or visit rbccm.com forward slash biopharma. If you're enjoying Pathfinders and Biopharma, don't miss an episode. Subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you all next time. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.